Greyhound to trap one. Over. Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. My name is Mark McManus. Joining me again today is Jason McLaughlin. Today we will be uh, discussing Eaters of Light by Rona Munro. Uh, welcome back, Jason. Oh, thank you very much. And, uh, uh, it's a pleasure to be invited back. Uh, pleasure to be speaking to you again. Uh, so how did you get on with um, the Empress of Mars last week, just out of interest? That was... Uh... Empress of Mars uh, was, I think, probably my favourite episode this series. Right. Uh, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a huge, enjoyable kind of romp. Um, again, it was pitched exactly as it looked like in, in the trailers. It was like, you know, Zulu, but with Ice Warriors. Um, some nice touches in there about, obviously, you know, imperialism and, and the rest of it. But it was great to see the Ice Warriors back and. Obviously, there was the lots of little touches in there for, for you know, the old um, Doctor Who fans, especially at the end of Alpha Centauri uh, yeah. being there. That was brilliant. I, I just kind of laughed with, with delight when uh, when Alpha Centauri turned up. That was uh, superb. And obviously, I was completely unaware that the the original actress who did the voice is, is still with us. You know, yeah. she's, I think she's now too. Yeah, uh, that's, uh... brilliant that they managed to get her back as well. Yeah, and that she can still recreate that voice as well at that age. It's uh, exactly because yeah. it's quite high pitched, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, unless you, I mean, she might always talk like that for all I know. I don't, I don't know from any <laughs> other work, but uh, <laughs> telephone calls interesting anyway, wouldn't yeah. they? <laughs> uh, that's quite bad. Look then that we've uh, we've ended up podcasting the two episodes either side of that, and that one's been your favourite. But uh, <laughs> I think it's just look at the drawer, isn't it? That's it. Uh, like and, uh, and in the last podcast, uh, Toby Whithouse has, has always been one of my like favourite new Who writers, and you know, unfortunately, this episode that he wrote for this series just didn't quite deliver as as well as like some of these other ones, like the God Complex and you know, Vampires of Venice and School Reunion. So it's it's just yeah. it's just uh, a bit of a shame that that one just wasn't quite there. That's it. Yeah, maybe a little bit hampered by having to do the. The, the closing of a trilogy as well, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, not a standalone episode sort of thing. Yeah, having to wrap up like you know the previous two episodes and like tie in all those kind of things, but then also still leave it open ended if the rumours are true that they kind of like links into the two part season finale as well. Yeah, that's it. Um, so you mentioned about the Empress of Mars, you know, kind of themes of uh, of empire and things like that. Something that carries over into uh, this episode as well, the Eaters of Light. You've got some some themes there with the the Romans instead of the British, and uh, kind of we'll talk about this as the episode goes on. But there's, there's again the themes of just sort of cowardice, isn't there? And uh, yes, and yeah, very much of like you know, obviously um, that whole kind of like. Thing that's bred into you probably as a soldier back you know in historical times that you know you, you don't think about who you're fighting against they're just like they are they are not us therefore we have to like you know uh, destroy them kind of like attitude that probably soldiers and and tribes had you know all those times ago yeah yeah absolutely 
Um, and the overnights for this one weren't. Uh, I know we were talking a bit about ratings last time. The overnights were a bit of a historic low, I think, weren't they for for this one? Unfortunately, they were. Um, but I suppose uh, you know, like I said last time, I'm a bit of a ratings junkie, and I follow that kind of stuff. I love I love all the kind of like you know the the facts and figures that go into stuff like that. Um, unfortunately, that he went out on one of the hottest days of the year. Um, Absolutely, but, yeah. Like reassuring that every single TV show that went out that night was very low on ratings. So it wasn't just Doctor Who. Um, the concern I kind of have is I was talking to a few Doctor Who fans on Twitter and also on one of the forums um, around Sunday, Monday, is that unfortunately the time shift uh, viewers don't seem to be there in the large numbers that they used to be. Um, mm. Doctor Who always kind of like led the way um, when Time Shift really took off, you know, back when the launch of iPlayer, yeah. you know, back, about 10 years ago now, and obviously with the introduction of DVRs and all that kind of like technology to record shows and then watch it back. Um, you know, it used to get like 2 million plus on Time Shift and the last episode, I think, that we've got figures for, which might be the Empress of Mars, if I remember correctly, only time-shifted 1.4 million viewers, which, you know, is still a lot of viewers, yeah. but when your overnights are lower as well, it means that that's reflected in, like, you know, obviously a lower final figure as well, and it means that this series just isn't quite kind of like getting up to the levels of, previous series that we've seen yeah that's because uh, I'd always imagined Doctor Who fans tend to be more tech savvy probably early adopters things like that so they're going to be using yeah. like you say those those new technologies more but uh, yeah that's uh, yeah it's strange isn't it it seems like it seemed like at the start of this series it was a, a kind of renewal of popularity and, uh, and things like that but it's yeah, hopefully they'll all come back for the finale. That's right, yeah, because obviously the, the the figures were up on the previous series at the beginning of the series, but then obviously you do get that kind of mid-series lull yeah. as it goes along. And unfortunately, we've now hit like you know really, really nice weather. Yeah. And normally you kind of, like, kind of see time shift viewers go up as a result of that, but it does seem as if there's a certain percentage of the casual viewers who always used to come back and watch Doctor Who haven't come back to it since it was last on in 2015 and I do think that probably having it not on at all bar the Christmas special 2016 has kind of probably just driven away some viewers and it's to some people it's not seen as must-see television it's kind of like I'll watch it when I get round to it. And yeah. unfortunately, I think in this day and age, you really need to be must-see TV to really deliver, like, you know, really high ratings. Absolutely. I suppose as much as I'm loath to see Peter Capaldi leave, you always get that boost with a new Doctor, don't you? You get that curiosity. Um, so with a new showrunner, a new Doctor, when it comes back next year, hopefully bring back that kind of appointment TV um, you know, kind of viewing style. Uh, you know, there'll be a lot of curiosity, won't there? Because it's, it's likely to be a new, a whole new cast, new writers, uh, everything else there. 
Yeah, indeed. And obviously, if, if some of the rumours that are like, floating around are true about what he's going to probably, well, he's not really said much about what he's going to do to the show. It's just that he's pitched this bold reinvention, whatever that means. Yeah, um, whether that then brings in like the casual viewers to go, oh, oh, Doctor Who looks exciting and and brilliant to watch again. Let, let's tune in. And it, it creates a buzz where people start to tell other people that, oh, you must watch it again. It's, it's, it's really good. And that drives ratings up. And that can only be a good thing, I suppose. That's it, and uh, I guess you know Broadchurch has been massively successful. You know, just kind of anecdotally, a lot of people at work, you know, they're coming in, they're talking about it the next day. Um, I mean, I guess the casual viewer doesn't really know who, you know, the writers and the showrunners are. But if, yeah, yeah. if there's some, you know, I guess they're going to kind of market it as you know the Broadchurch showrunner coming on to Doctor Who, um, bring bring along some of that audience, you know, who've, who've enjoyed uh, Broadchurch. Uh, that should do it some favours as well. Um, but yeah, yeah got... I'm sure the BBC will certainly like drop Broadchurch into the publicity a lot. Because, um, like you say, you know, Broadchurch has been probably like the biggest drama hit of the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, definitely... So it can only be a good thing to like mention that to like you know bring some of those casual viewers back who might have like just like drifted off like when David Tennant and Matt Smith left and you know because of the increased gaps sometimes between series and it being moving around the schedules a lot you know yeah because it was like fixed always in the spring and people knew it was and then it's kind of like been shifted around quite a lot from Moffitt's time he's he's experimented a lot with where the show went sometimes it's been in the autumn sometimes it's been sim- split autumn spring and then it's gone back to autumn again so you know as much as people use their DVRs and their TV guides and, you know, the Radio Times or whatever, if your show isn't on at the same time every single year, you might lose track of where it is, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, think, I think what you touched on there was the um, the Chris Chibnall um, interview with the Royal Television Society um, that's been kind yeah. of doing the rounds a bit this week. Where, as you say, all he's really said is that he had a quite a, a bold new pitch that he said to the BBC, "This is how I would want to do Doctor Who," and he didn't think they'd exactly agree to it, and they did. Um, so there's been masses of speculation on that as to whether it's going to be a Broadchurch-style one story stretched over a series, um, uh-huh. which I've then seen people tweeting that as if it's a fact, you know, and, and kind of weighing on the opinions of it and things, but. Um, he hasn't really said anything as such, has he? Just that, uh, just that he has a new way of doing it. Yeah, and obviously, until we actually know more details and when it actually starts to go into production, which I believe, contrary to some of the rumours that said, oh, it's not going back into production until next year, I believe Edward Russell, the brand manager for the show, has actually said no. It, it will be back in production for around about October time once Capaldi and Moffat have finished. Like right. um, the special, yeah. Uh, then we might start knowing more about what they're gonna do. Whether it's gonna be, as rumours say, it's gonna be ten episodes for a series instead of twelve, or whether they're not gonna be forty-five minutes long. They're gonna be an hour long, is what some rumours are going round on some of the fan forums. Right. So there's lots of things that obviously we don't know yet, and yeah. a lot of people are speculating, and then some of that speculation is then being picked up and then 
like you say, being repeated as concrete fact when obviously yeah. it isn't. That's it. It will be interesting to see what he does, you know, because, uh, you know, they've already talked about how he might not bring uh, any of the current writers back. Uh, Stephen Moffat took over. He didn't use any of the directors that had worked under Russell T. Davis to begin with, did he? Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, they, grabs, they went yeah. for a kind of quite a different, um, I would say, different photography, like kind of like um, look to the show as well. Yeah. During Russell T. Davis's time, it was very kind of like bold and colourful and very bright. You know, it still had its moments of darkness, but it was always kind of like brightly lit. Yeah. And, you know, colourful to watch. It looked like a Saturday night show. And I think one of the things that Moffat then did when bringing in different like directors and stuff is that the cinematography has gone sometimes a little bit kind of like dark for a for a Saturday night TV show. Yeah, it's more sort of muted and uh, but, blue. Isn't yeah, it? And sort of, uh, yeah, muted, grey, but then obviously a lot of dramas look like that as well. Yeah. And Game of Thrones is probably one of the best examples of that kind of like muted, kind of like greyish look that he sometimes has. Yeah. But sometimes I don't think that's quite worked for Doctor Who and it probably needs to re invigorate itself from a like a look wise as well yeah that's it it's uh yeah kind of a new palette and a, and a new style interesting to see if yeah. it brings murray gold back as well yeah of course and obviously they uh, re- revamp the uh, theme tune which obviously seems to happen every yeah. couple of years yeah you'd imagine new new credits new theme tune but, uh, yeah just think about when john nathan turner took over and he was kind of out with the old wasn't he um I've forgotten the guy that did the music that he got rid of. Um, really famous. Uh, oh, uh, Dudley Simpson. Dudley wasn't Simpson, it? yeah, the, uh, the Australian yeah, guy. Isn't was he was style, wasn't he, of that whole like seventies era? Yeah, uh, and then yeah, Nathan Turner was just sort of you know it's all changed. Yeah, just uh, just dropped him. Uh, so yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much change comes in. You know, all at the same time, really. And yeah, and how popular then that like you know reinvigorates the show or or whether it, it drives even more viewers away. Hopefully not, but it's it's nice to know that apparently there's a five year plan and that the BBC have commissioned the show for the next five years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's um, it. Doesn't stop fans worrying, I guess, about uh, ratings and and reviews and stuff. But uh, it is quite reassuring, I think. I think for those fans of a certain generation like myself who kind of like lived through that time yeah. when the BBC really didn't like the show at all and wanted to take it off very, very swiftly and or bury it up against Coronation Street where nobody would watch it yeah. and as an excuse to then take it off. I think that kind of like has an imprint on you and stays with you and like think that the slightest dip in ratings, it's like, oh my God, they're going to then yeah. cancel the show again. <laughs> and obviously TV... How it's made, how it's produced, how it's watched is completely different to the TV landscape of like back in the late 1980s. Absolutely. And there must be far more overseas sales now than they were achieving at that time as well. Indeed. And even Moffat, I think, has obviously commented on this a few times when obviously people have questioned him about like the way ratings have, you know, dipped slightly over the last couple of years and said, well, TV is consumed differently. People sometimes want to watch all the episodes in one sitting, in a like a box set, in a yeah. kind of 
know, binge fest. And it's like, he, I think he used this analogy. He said, TV now is very much like when a book is published. You don't necessarily go and buy that book or read that book on the day that it comes out. You, you consume it when you have the time to consume it. And to be fair, I think he's right. There's a, you know, you can see how some ratings for shows increase dramatically from their final seven day figure, including time shift. And now the, um, the audience bureau who produced the TV ratings figures produced 28 day plus. Um, yeah, and you can see some huge leaps um, because people do watch them like a month after that they after they've initially been broadcast. Yeah, absolutely. With the iPlay, you've got your thirty days, haven't you, to uh, to take off on it? Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, if you're ready, then we will start watching uh, the Eaters of Light. Yep. Okay. Uh, so if you're watching along at home, we will press play in three, two, one. Uh, we've got the, the Devil's Cairn in, uh, in present day Scotland. So it makes you think of, uh, Devil's Hump immediately. Yes. Uh, evoking that name, doesn't it? Same kind of thing, the, the cairn, isn't it? If, uh, maybe kind of the ancient Celtic, uh, Structures, and obviously with the stones there, it's kind of like a little bit of a is it a throwback to like uh, the Pandorica opens, you know, with those yeah. kind of like stones. Is it the underhenge like going to be something that's going to be something in this yeah. as well? Yeah, I was I was hoping for the augury as well from the stones of blood, but I think that's uh, yeah. I don't think they're in a hurry to bring those back. <laughs> They they scared me ridiculously when I was a kid. Yeah, they really did. <laughs> yeah, there was um, when um, you know they release all the kind of publicity photos before an episode comes out. There's a particular shot yeah. of uh, of Heaven Sent where the Doctor is standing in front of uh, you know what we learn when we watch the episode is that kind of crystal wall that he has to punch through. Um, oh yeah. But there's one photo where I thought it looked like an ogre. Uh, <laughs> When they used the light, yeah, yeah, Yeah. kind of because the light shines through it, and and where the ogre have got that kind of inner light, haven't they? Yeah, Um, that's right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was a bit of a forlorn hope. Uh, And uh, Rona Monroe, first classic series writer to write for the yeah, no, her the famous last writer of the original classic series. Yeah, I, that's that's really my era when I started watching it when those were going out. So I love Survival. So I was uh, very pleased when she was announced as coming back. And she's uh, obviously since like that was what I think was that one of the very first uh, professional works, and since then she's become a very very successful playwright, hasn't she? Yeah, they totally different landscape then. You know, Andrew Cartmel was uh, he was really trying to bring brand new writers in. Um, and as you said before, the BBC cared so little that they would just let him do, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever what he, he wanted. Yeah, um, I think Stephen Moffat's alluded to the fact that, you know, it's it's not entirely his choice sometimes. You know, he, he has to go to the BBC and uh, have the writers okayed. So they have to yeah. have a certain stature to, uh, you know, to kind of get on there. 
I so obviously uh, with sorry, Villa yeah. having a bit of a agreement about what happened to this uh, um, legendary Roman legion. Yeah, it's not. I've, I've heard of them, but it wasn't something I'm that familiar with the uh, the the Ninth Legion. But it's uh, it's great when Doctor Who picks real historical kind of mysteries or oddities, isn't it? And uh, yeah, and does its own little spin on it. Um, I think my favourite um, one of that is the Visitation. Yeah, the, the which Great Fire of London. Yeah, get to see as the Doctor who uh, accidentally caused the Great Fire of London. Yeah. The the bit there where the Doctor says um, that he's lived as a Roman. At first, I thought it was a little in joke to the fires of Pompeii. Oh um, yeah, with his previous role as uh, Calcius, wasn't it? Yeah. But then he said he's lived in Roman Britain and he was a governor. It was obviously a different sort of uh, uh, a different time that he was there. Then uh, Bill's gone and found Car here. I thought this was great. As soon as she sees it, she starts uh, charging uh, with the sword towards him, screaming. I just thought, kind of, welcome to Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not the not the warmest welcome. <laughs> Obviously, they got the kind of like the kind of Braveheart style, like um, painting stuff on their faces. Yeah, and I thought this was a kind of like—is this like a little bit of a throwback to like the classic series, like the the companion falling into something? Like they kind of like you always used to twist their ankle and that kind yeah. of thing, and and getting into trouble and it's like that classic separation of the doctor and the companion scenario isn't it that the classic series always used to do yeah yeah you don't get that as much now do you um, no and i think we touched upon it in when i was last uh, on podcast it's like sometimes it's a bit limited in what you can actually do in the the new 45 minute single story um setting that they now have that you can't kind of like do that kind of thing yeah i think yeah if, if they do go to a, an hour it would give them a bit more scope for the, the stories to breathe a bit wouldn't it would be uh be interesting that you know the two parties that we had in the last series uh i really really enjoyed just get that yeah a bit more from the supporting cast a bit more depth to the story Probably having yeah, that all along as well. Re- having a third member of the uh, of the cast here helps them to split up as well. You don't. Yes. We don't need to stay together for exposition quite as much. Mm. I, I've got to admit that the second time I watched this, I put the subtitles on because I found it difficult to hear what the crows were saying. When uh, later on, when they're saying monster, I thought they were saying master. I thought it was a little bit of foreshadowing oh, for. Well, uh, oh yeah. But, uh, Which I, links into the whole like Misty and uh, arc that we've had throughout the series with the yeah. vault. So, yeah, I actually thought they said Master as well. Yeah, it wasn't until like, I checked that those bits with the subtitles and the, yeah, they are sort of warning about the uh, the monster. And this is again, it's a little thing of, uh, again, I don't think, I'm surprised Bill hasn't realised before she's uh, come this time that obviously it's the TARDIS and the telepathic circuits and that kind of like makes her understand every language yeah. uh, that other characters speak when they arrive somewhere completely different 
Yeah, I really like. Uh, it's the first time I've had a companion figure that out. It's a it's a really nice character point for her. I think that she's uh, that she's pieced it together. Uh, but yeah, she has. You'd have the doctor. She, yeah, she might have figured out with the aliens rather than with the sort of uh, <laughs> the ancient Britons. But yeah, it's uh, ties into that thing. I think that the, some of the writers um, on this series have said, you know, that Bill learns something about the Doctor. Uh, and his world in every episode. Um, so it's a nice little Sarah Jane moment for us, isn't it, of uh, figuring that part out? Yeah. And also, I, I like this whole thing of, uh, obviously, that the Doctor's taken her to this point in history as like part of her overall studies that he's doing whilst he's the like one of the deans at the university, which, again, on reflection, it's kind of like, I wish I'd seen perhaps a little bit more of that yeah. Across the series because we're coming very closely to the end of it now. Um, yeah. We haven't seen just that tutor pupil aspect as what it started off at the original um, beginning of the series. Yeah, I think I think some there are bits like that. It's like with the Missy thing. It'd been nice to see more of her. Um, you know the way she's changing and the Doctor's teaching her and yeah, you know, or rehabilitating her at least. It feels like it's happened quite quickly that she's now sort of feeling um, the guilt and, and crying and things. Uh, but I guess yeah. it's... Yeah, it, that uh, she seems to be going through. Yeah. And is this where we have the first kind of like glimpse of the the monster of the episode? Yeah, it's a nice design. We saw the earlier didn't we yeah yeah that's a real classic Doctor Who thing isn't it of seeing the monster's point of view um, you don't get that that often I think in the modern series um, no but you get it all the time in the classic series don't you uh, yeah you kind of like obviously watching it back now you kind of like get the reason why they did that was purely for because it costs too much. Yeah. So, it's to me, from the creature's point of view in the old series, saved money. Yeah. And it was an easy effect that they could do. Yeah, it's some kind of filter over it, or uh, or like the um, the K1 robot. It's like that kind of uh, grid thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I guess the same, same kind of thing here, because it's an entirely CGI monster. Um, it's not on the screen all that much, is it? No. It's a nice design. I like the the tentacles and the uh, the way it uh, the way it grabs them without giving them much chance to fight back. Yeah, I was trying to think of what kind of monster that it reminded me of of like something that's been in a, a film recently, and the only thing I could really think of was the it was very much like a smaller version of the the beast that you see in the uh, Cloverfield. Film. Ah, yeah. But obviously, with the little blue lights added onto it, which uh, was I thought was a nice little touch. That like phosphorescence aspect that it seems to have have to it. Yeah. I suppose, especially in these scenes where they're in the cave, you wouldn't really be able to see the tentacles as well. So yeah, it's a nice way of doing it. So we've got the rest of the Ninth Legion survivors here. Who are all quite young as well, and that's uh, something that they touch upon in this uh, 
later on when they have a conversation, don't they? Yeah. About it. Yeah, and similar, uh, same, similar sort of themes to Empress of, of Mars, where you've got the, uh, the, I can't remember the guy's name, the guy who was in, in Commando and he's, uh, he'd been sort of hung for cowardice and everything. You've got these guys who are deserters. Um, but then through the story, you know, sort of finding their courage and uh, the doctor, uh, I guess, getting them on board. Obviously, Bill's just realised she's covered in a bit of that black slime, and there she goes down like a. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so wasn't it? Sure. <clears throat> that was a fainting because of the effect of the, the black slime, or whether it was just a shock of finding it on her. Uh, this is a nice scene, I think, with the. Uh, where they've all got the, uh, all the, uh, the picks have got the Dr. Renard all surrounded. And everyone's absolutely terrified them. Again, it shows they're really young. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of not, not quite sure what to do. And now there's a few dressing gowns. Matt Lucas is all in, in this. Yeah. He's brilliant in his dressing gown and uh, kind of little hat the whole time. And moaning about he just wants to go back to bed. Yeah. <laughs> As if he's been woken up and dragged into the TARDIS before yeah. like, the Europe arrived yeah. here in like, Scotland. Yeah, this bit with the popcorn I, I really liked, because that's the kind of thing that would appeal to kids, isn't it? That, uh, you know, it's not the sonic screwdriver or anything, uh, you know, anything kind of fancy like that. It's just to run a bag of popcorn on the fire to, uh, to startle the, uh, the picked... Yeah, a simple trick that obviously, you know, if you did it in, if they were captured by like somebody in modern day, like England, Scotland or wherever, they wouldn't fall for it. But obviously, you know, these, you know, Celts haven't seen popcorn at all and obviously don't know what it is. And then obviously that's what, you know, makes them like, you know, scared. And then it gives the Doctor and Nardole the opportunity to like, you know, escape. Yeah, really nice. I think we missed the line before that was uh, I absolutely I've made note of it that I absolutely loved was the um, when they find the corpse of the the Roman soldier, and the doctor says that he's, he's you know died by having um, you know uh, I can't remember exactly what he says so you know about there being no sunlight whatsoever. No, oh yeah, says death by Scotland. Um, <laughs> that's a superb line. I thought that was a very good line because it's again um, that's just gone there where um, he's moaning about the Romans that they've come and they've laid waste to our lands, our families, you know. Yeah. And the doctor just retorts about, yeah, but the toilets are good, aren't they? Yeah. You know, and it's uh, <laughs> whether that's a deliberate kind of like little Monty Python gag about the life of Brian, you know, what have yeah. the Romans ever done for us, and yeah. that kind of. <laughs> I, I thought that was quite a, a nice little. Uh, joke there. Yeah. Yeah, I love the life of Brian. Superb. So you get a lot of Scotland jokes really since Stephen Moffat took over, didn't you? Even in the uh, in, in the first one, the uh, the eleventh hour, when the eleventh Doctor meets the young Amy Pond, um, and she's trying to find something that he wants to eat, 
and he goes, you're Scottish, aren't you? Fry something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, get a few little things like that. Obviously, Ronan Munro, uh, like Stephen Moffat, being Scottish. Yeah. And obviously, you know, Peter Capaldi as well, you know, so. Yeah. They all throw in a few um, lines like that. Uh, it's like, obviously, uh, Peter Capaldi's first episode, Deep Breath, there was a few, quite a few yeah. uh, gags about him having a Scottish accent and, you know, and then obviously the gags about his eyebrows as well. Yeah. There's the it's deep breath isn't there's a line where he says something, yeah, something like oh what's going on he says I don't know but I'll probably blame the English yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is um I really like this as well the uh, the idea that time moves differently um in the uh, in the portal yeah because he goes in here doesn't he and he's only there for a couple of minutes and then he pops out and didn't doesn't Nardole say that he, he's been gone for two days yeah it's a nice way of kind of moving things on a bit isn't it for uh you know that bill's healed or whatever from uh from the the monster um and ties into the into the end as well with the uh the time moving differently and this is great that uh, this is the thing about Nardole, isn't he? That he's just the ultimate survivor. Uh, so he's just completely uh, <laughs> won them over, for, painted his face. Uh, and now it's kind of. He's got me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah in seconds, uh, but you, you've been there for two days. Yeah. And he, you don't really believe him that he's looked for Bill at all, I think. <laughs> I think he's given her a second thought. Uh, they really remind me of a, of a Douglas Adams type thing as well. It's very hitchhikers that the um, the aliens that communicate by digesting each other. Yeah, <laughs> it's like something that the uh, the book in Hitchhiker's Guide would, would kind of re, um, relay as a, as a historical footnote, isn't it? The best uh, one of those little um, like offshoots that I, I like from the. The Hitchhiker box is the the little um, offshoot when he goes on about the planet of the Byros. Where do all the Byro pens go? Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they actually discovered it and then uh, the planet disappeared. Then Zaphod Beeblebrox then started a, a very handy second hand Byro yeah. business. <laughs> uh, and there's that fleet, isn't there, that um, they get offended by something that. that in in their language meant something different so they fly across the universe uh, and when they get there they're swallowed by a dog because they're uh, minuscule in, in comparison to, to humans yeah. uh, and this is quite a nice kind of um, inversion of the few scenes we've had with Bill where she's sort of uh, told people about her sexuality um, yeah, that uh, that the Romans you know, obviously doesn't phase them at all. It's part of their culture. It's um, interesting because I was reading a interview with Rona Munro, which was in um, this month's Doctor Who magazine, and she said that that's the difference between obviously the twenty first century version of Doctor Who and obviously the classic version because she said she could 
openly write that kind of scene and not have any kind of like throwback or controversy about it. Yeah. Whereas obviously there's in survival, um, she did put like the kind of lesbian subtext in between um, Ace and the one of the cheetah people. Yeah. You know, game human, uh, played by Lisa Bowerman, I think, who plays Bernice Summerfield in the audios. Yeah, she's uh, she's. She's gone on to do loads. She directs a lot of Big Finish and stuff as well, doesn't she? Yeah, that's right. And obviously she said she had to be very careful about how she wrote that back in 1989. And obviously Andrew Cartmel supported her, but they had to make it very much, very subtle so that it went over a lot of people's heads. But yeah. that the people who it was aimed at would obviously get what they were on about, whereas yeah. this scene now between Bill and the Romans is completely uh, the opposite, and you know, is obviously just shows how much we've we've come forward and you know accepting that kind of thing, and it's not hidden you know anymore like it you know sometimes was you know back when survival was written, yeah, and that it, it's good that you know because I love. The Roman soldiers' reaction, as in, and you know, so you like women, you know. Yeah. I like both. He likes men, you know. It's, it's like he says. I don't think he's narrow-minded at all. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice, different way of doing it as well because we've had similar scenes in in a few different episodes. Um, it's it's another thing. It's like when Bill meets uh, in Oxygen. Uh, she meets uh, Darren, the guy who's blue. Um, and just gives her another way of looking at things, doesn't it? Yes, it does, yeah. Uh, she's brilliant, though, Pearl Mackey's just... Uh, I think every every episode she, uh, she absolutely shines, doesn't she? Yeah, it'd be interesting, because I'm mean, obviously, I think... The rumours are still that she's only doing this series and she's leaving uh, at the end of this. So I presume she's not going to be in the the Christmas special along with, you know, Peter Capaldi. Um, so I'm just obviously interested in see how they do write her out. And yeah. it's, it's quite strange not having that transition with yeah. a companion or from, a you know, a, a new doctor. Um Obviously, we had that with the 10th and into the 11th, and then, you know, the 11th uh, was completely a, a new, fresh, yeah. um, no overs from the previous, like, you know, regime at all. Yeah, it would be interesting. It's, I suppose it's good from the point of view of being a jumping on point for new viewers. Um, you, you don't need that sort of pre-knowledge, but it, it would be, be a shame to lose Pearl Mackey at the same time. Yeah, uh, it'd be interesting to see if Matt Lucas is in the uh, the Christmas special then. Indeed, and obviously whether the uh, the whole rumours about um, David Bradley, uh, yeah. uh, any truth in in those at all? Because uh, obviously he's rumoured to be appearing as the the first Doctor, isn't he? Yeah, um, which seems it seems because they're only just starting to film that now, aren't they? And those rumours are quite old, so. They are, yeah, but they haven't really been developed since, or no one's really commented on them. Though it's a case of like, well, is is he or isn't he? I suppose as soon as somebody spots David Bradley in Cardiff, we'll probably know yeah. whether it's true. Or not. It's, uh, 
it'd be surprising if um, if you if you didn't get um, Bill back in some way, and maybe Nardole and Clara. The the final stories of a Doctor tend to be quite sort of uh, nostalgic, don't they? Um, you know, Amy came back for the brief scene uh, in Time of the Doctor, uh, and obviously the. Um, uh, the 10th Doctor having Lord of the Rings approach yeah. uh, in time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they probably won't go that far again. But, everybody. Um, but it seems fitting to have uh, to have some callbacks, doesn't it, to their era? Yeah, because um, essentially that's what it's becoming now. It is like it's they are defined now as as more eras, whereas obviously in the classic series it was it wasn't seen as that as much, was it? Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean the thing I hope it just it, it's kind of a a fast paced story. It'd be good to have um I feel like the the end of time and time of the doctor it felt quite kind of static and um don't know what the word is you know, a bit kind of sonorous. Um really? I think okay. it'd be good if you know, something with you know like the caves of Androzani or something like that that's uh just kind of a thumping good action story that he re- regenerates at the end of, but, you know, the end of yeah. time. There's uh, especially towards the end. There's a lot of standard around with Rassilon and uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and then the time of the Doctor, it he's 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 stuck on um, Trenzalore, isn't he? And he's he's kind of gradually grown older, living in that uh, that clock tower. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel like a a more energetic one would be would be welcome. Well, like you say, I mean, the case of Androzani is like you probably your perfect example because it's a story that would work even if he didn't regenerate at the end. It is just like you say, it's a thumping good Doctor Who story. Yeah. And it's just as a consequence of obviously the adventure, he dies. There's no uh, foreboding. There's no like pre-knowledge that he is going to regenerate, which I think sometimes, certainly with obviously the 10th Doctor and the 11th Doctor, has kind of like impacted on their final stories that they've been aware that they are going to regenerate. Yeah, there's kind in of... this story, sometimes takes away, I think, a bit of the drama. Yeah, because you had the prophecies, didn't you, with the tenth Doctor? The he will knock four times. Yes, um, and then with uh, with the eleventh Doctor as well, you had that thing about the fall of the eleventh and Trenzalore that was kind of seeded yeah. earlier on in his in his. Um, Tenure. It's interesting that you say that. Obviously, you felt the the last two, the tenth and the eleventh doctors were quite you know, like slow in their pace and stuff uh, for their final stories. Um, I all agree with the end of time. I thought, yeah, that could have probably like you know been shortened and speeded up. And like I say, there was a lot of standing around saying, "I'm going to regenerate soon," and well, yeah. just get on with. By the end of it, I did feel with Matt's final story that it was almost as if they weren't expecting Matt Smith to leave quite as soon as what he did. Yeah, and as if Stephen Moffat then had to like wrap up this whole thing that he was setting up probably for another season and he had to wrap it up in that 60 minutes. And I did actually think that story could have benefited from. Perhaps actually being a two-parter. Yeah, 
I like the idea of him growing older over the story. Uh, yeah, something yeah. different to do. Um, and it does uh, kind of uh, open up the possibilities if Matt Smith does any big finish, um, or even comes back to Doctor at any point in the future. It won't matter what age he is, because <laughs> they can uh, just, they can say it's from he just friends a lot for a bit. Yeah, that's it. Um, interesting as well, kind of um, touching on the um, the last episode that we spoke about, that uh, the lie of the land. It does seem like Bill absolutely knows about regeneration now. Uh, yeah, having shied away from telling her earlier on because he mentions it again in this one, and she doesn't uh, she doesn't bat an eyelid or question it. And that's right. When he's uh, he's saying he's got to go into the portal to keep the, the the monsters back and it's like well no no you can't and obviously then the decisions are like taken out of his hands and, yeah uh, she does like, yeah like you say mention the whole regeneration aspect there like the uh, the bit with Nardo there where he does his, um, his Scottish accent <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously we've got the discussion here again about why they can all understand each other yeah and in a way, that kind of like brings the tribe and the Romans together to then fight the common foe that they've got. Yeah. Like the uh, the Curse of Fenric, the, the, the pawns must unite. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's a nice way of... Um, it's not really something that's usually touched on, is it? The, the TARDIS translation circuit working for uh, the people that are around them. Normally focuses no. just on the, the TARDIS crew, doesn't it? Yes, that's right, yeah. I thought that's a nice little touch uh, aspect of obviously how do people sound like to the Doctor and obviously said you sound like children. Yeah. And then Bill automatically talks to him, well, do we all sound like that? Does everybody sound like children to you? I thought that's a nice little bit of dialogue there yeah. between them. And obviously, it kind of like shows how perhaps the Doctor does view, you know, um, his companions or other races, and that they are obviously to him, with him being a Time Lord and seeing the universe in a different way, that they are like, you know, like a, a younger races and like, you know, more immature than what he is. That's it. and even as individuals, they they don't live enough. They don't live long enough to accrue the knowledge and experience that he does. Uh, he's quite uh, impatient at times in this one. It's a little bit uh, more like he was earlier in his run, isn't he? But not yeah, angry, but, I suppose. But but for a throwback to his series eight kind of persona. Yeah. Kurt with people wasn't able in that series. Yeah, yeah, he's not quite as angry, but but just sort of a bit impatient. And uh, I suppose he's he's surrounded by much younger people as well. Because um, the the Picts and the Romans are all sort of late teens, aren't they? Yeah. Which again, I thought was a nice yeah. touch, not to have like obviously any um, older like uh, characters in it it's yeah. something kind of like has kind of like a bit of a perhaps a like Lord of the Flies approach to it 
yeah. in that regard. I like this as well, the Bill calling him out on, because um, this is the thing that the Doctor's always done, isn't it, of saying he's got a plan, but then not letting on what it is. Uh, it's nice that Bill will uh, call him out on that. And, yeah. But obviously he doesn't want to tell her because it... Uh, it involves yeah. him going into the, uh, the the rift as it is. Yeah. Oh, and there you go, there's the crow saying monster, which uh, we obviously... Um, no, we both said when we watched it originally on transmission, we thought it said master. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was uh, some foreshadowing. Yeah, just warning that the, uh, the creature's on its way. Yeah, it's cool the way it moves. It's 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 very little screen time, isn't it? That it that it has. It's probably the uh, the bulk of it we're seeing now. Well, for for the effect that it is, it, it's still very impressive. Yeah. It was a bit like a, a dragon or a crocodile as well, isn't it? So. Yeah, haven't had the upright crocodiles last week. It's uh, <laughs> like a tentacle crocodile. Uh, but I like the effects and everything using using the light as a as a, a weapon against it. It's a nice. Uh, and then forcing it into different. the void. Yeah. And I thought again, it's uh, kind of like a bit of a parallel to uh, the whole creatures coming in through the void and they, they continue to come in through the void it's going to endanger the world yeah. again it's very similar to uh, one of David Tennant's specials on it Planet of the Dead which had a very similar kind of like uh, plot with those kind of like um, I don't know what they were called in the episode yeah, but yeah. those kind of like silver thin kind of stingray like sharks that came in out through the void that we're just going to devour everything, yeah. Yeah. So yes, this bit I didn't quite understand because um, they said that the uh, the doctor says that the human lifespan's too short to sort of effectively defend the portal. But then when they go in, it just seems to work out. I wasn't sure whether it was because the um, because the thing collapses or what, but. Yeah, because they're saying that somebody needs to be in there and stay in there for a period of time. Uh, and obviously, the doctor's his argument is that I can do it because I live a lot longer than you and I have to regenerate. Therefore, I can perhaps potentially use up a couple of regenerations whilst I'm guarding the void and making sure it stays shut. Yeah. And then some, like, no, the Romans decide to do it and the the pels and it's like well but his yeah. argument is still there they would just age very very quickly in the void and then is the void still guarded is it protected or will yeah. it then open and it, it yeah it's, it's not quite clear is it no i've, I've got a text actually i was texting my mates about this um this is uh, my mate Mike Hodgson. I don't think he listens, but hello if you are listening. Um, where I was saying that, uh, I was saying that you know I, I kind of didn't didn't quite get this bit, and he says, "Yeah, I was following the logic that one dude could fight the thing off on his own for a minute or two. That equated to thirty ish, thirty ish years of Earth time. So a group of dudes fighting together would likely last longer. 
Let's say that without water, as heroes, they can fight at full effectiveness till they die of thirst. Impossible, but it's a bounding case condition. Assuming a comfortable environment, but constant or near constant if they fight in shifts to let people sleep. Ten days is a very generous overestimate, uh, but it gives us an absolute maximum bounding case. 14,400 minutes would be ten days. Uh, in ten days. Portal to Earth time conversion, one minute equals 30 years. So 14,500 times 30 equals 432,000 years. Roundup to be generous, given the Doctor's stated conversion rate was offhand, so those dudes can keep the creatures at bay for a maximum of 450,000 years, which is pretty impressive, but current best guess is that the Earth's sun will last another 5 billion years, <laughs> um, or take it from the time where the episode happens, so the Doctor's heroic band will be keeping the universe safe from total darkness by infinite space locusts for 0.001%, sorry, 0001% of the remaining lifetime of our sun. Obviously, the rest of the universe and its suns will just have to suck it up. <laughs> and it goes on. He's a scientist, by the way, of some description. I'm not sure. <laughs> right, obviously. It's either that he has far too much time yeah, on his hands. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, this was during the day as well. Uh, so this is uh, when, he, when he's at work. You, you could be generous and say that tech will have advanced to a point where we could effortlessly defeat them by then. But Doctor Who doesn't really work on that sort of universal tech advancement scale. Presumably what we have by then is currently in the hands of some aliens already, maybe the Time Lords. Um, and as the Doctor himself said, these things are a threat to the entire universe here and now and was willing to sacrifice himself to do it. So Earth's only line of defense has gone to buy us safety from it. But I'm not sure that's... Uh... So yeah, presuming that a Gallifrey can last 10,000 times longer than the humans, then our sun would be all right. He says, there you have it, mathematical proofs that the Doctor is really half-arsed on this one. <laughs> 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 Which, yeah, I thought that was, uh, yeah, that was quite funny. He's looked into it quite, quite detailed there. <laughs> True, um, but obviously my real Doctor Who geekiness coming out here is like probably by the time that portal opens again, isn't the Earth completely deserted because of the whole solar flares thing and nobody's living on it anyway? Yeah, there'd be there'd be no one to stop them but the Santarans, would there? So. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe Big Finish can pick that one up in a few years. Yeah, perhaps if they can get Capaldi on board uh, yeah. once he's gone and get the rights to the 12th Doctor here, he can like, perhaps yeah. be, um, pop back in the year 450,000 <laughs> or something. Uh, so this Not is a, a quick reveal of Missy already in the TARDIS. Yeah, this, uh, this is a nice surprise, I thought. She's been doing a bit of maintenance on the, on the engines as well. Yeah. So I think it's probably the first bit of maintenance since Frank Skinner had a look at them um, in the Mummy on the Orton Express. He was uh, invited to stay on, wasn't he, as the uh, as the engineer? He was, and I uh, remember him saying in an interview at the time, because obviously he's a big Doctor Who fan as well, he yeah. said he was so tempted to say yes yeah. <laughs> when, when uh, they were filming, because he said he would have wanted to stay. Yeah, yeah, because he's got um, a radio show on, uh, he's Absolute Radio, I listen to the podcast each week, really funny. Uh, and at around the time that, it, that his episode was on, he was uh, he was saying his favourite review of the episode was that um, Frank Skinner played Frank Skinner in a hat in that one. Which, uh, 
which was really quite a funny way of putting it. Uh, so yeah, I wondered if um, he got to look at the engines because of the way the the TARDIS returned to Earth from Mars last week. It's not kind of uh, made explicit, but if that, that's yeah, because we haven't really had an explanation for why that happened, have we? Yeah, I was thinking about it during the week. I was thinking it's probably the fast return switch again. Maybe it needs a new spring. That was yeah, well, is it the uh, ad, isn't it? The yeah. hostile action. Defense uh, system or whatever it was. It's it's the acronym and it stands for. Yeah. And obviously, obviously, they're they're still there in that rift, and that's their music is still playing because they're still defending the rift, and that's yeah. obviously the explanation for why you can then still hear the music when you go up on the hill. Yeah, I wasn't sure why the musicians walked into the rift with them. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> the, the the storyteller didn't. He said, "I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll just write your story." You go. I thought that. Yeah, the um, car's brother. He was very quick to uh, to volunteer not to go in, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and again, we're seeing more of the uh, kind of like redemption of Missy, the master, with her crying there. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that Bill was. Um was so concerned about Missy being out of the vault because she hasn't really seen Missy before this, has she? She hasn't seen the true true, the true face kind of thing. No, and obviously they they went into the vault to consult her about the whole getting rid of the monks, didn't they, in, in the yeah. light of the land. And that was the first time she'd really met Missy. But unless the doctors filled her in on, like, who she is and what their past history is in between yeah. episodes. Uh, didn't quite get that reaction, uh, why she would have had that. Yeah. He's probably told her about the King's Demons and uh, you know the uh, Time Flight and all those kind of run-ins. You know? <laughs> Hijacking the Pharos Project. And yeah. <laughs> blowing up a church at Devil's End. Yeah. I suppose the fact that the, she knows the Doctor wouldn't have locked the character up as well if uh, there wasn't a good reason to yeah and then into the next time trailer for the season finale yeah I'm pretty excited about this indeed yeah um, similar sort of idea from from trying to avoid spoilers but, but from what I've garnered that this ship is that they arrive and is 400 miles long um, and it's moving away from a black hole but time is moving differently at one end to the other um, oh. similar kind of idea isn't it to the uh, to the portal that they've just left where time moves differently I, I, I wasn't aware that he was involved in any kind of like you know time differences or anything but I have seen one theory that um, about John Sim and the master yeah about that Somebody has speculated that they think that perhaps he won't actually be the actual master, but he'll just be like a manifestation of Missy's personality fighting back against her turning good. Ah, right. So that she'll be the only one who actually sees him. Yeah. And nobody else will actually see John Sims' master, which is, an, is a great take on it. Yeah, it's but interesting. ultimately kind of like, would be a bit disappointing if we don't get to see 
the Doctor fight two Masters for a change. Instead of it being a multi-Doctor story, we actually finally get a multi-Master story. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd rather see that as well. Yeah. Um, Because there's always the possibility that you'd see, I guess, John Sims' Master regenerate um, into Missy during this adventure and have two Missies as well. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then it could be like three Masters in the story. Yeah. Um, Maybe even get, well, I guess you're not going to get Eric Roberts back, but nice to get Eric Roberts back. You could have the the desiccated... um, you know, kind of corpse-like master from uh, the Deadly Assassin and Keeper of Tracking as well. Yeah, because, I mean, Jeffrey Beavers plays that role, doesn't he, for Big Finish, and obviously he's still with us. Yeah. Uh, he's acting, and uh, obviously that makeup job could be done again Yeah. Uh, by the new series, and I think they do a very, very good job at doing a, a decayed, decrepit master. Yeah. If they were ever to bring that aspect of the incarnation back, that, that would be actually quite good. To He's see that, brilliant in those big finishes, isn't he? He is so creepy. The um, the ones that they did, um, where they did Davros, the Master, and Omega, the Master one of those really, really creepy. So, so yeah, with Master McCoy. Yeah, yeah, um, very, very good. Yeah. Did you hear the the two Masters story that Big Finish did? Was it like last year, maybe? Um, uh, they- no. I don't think I have, I've heard that one yet. Like I said, there's, there's some aspects of Big Finish I'm a bit behind on. Yeah, I am too. Um, it's the, the, I mean, time-consuming and expensive to, to completely keep up with them. Um, <laughs> Very, yeah. I, I kind of like just did... I, I tend to only get the McGann uh, range because, of obviously, he's one of my favourites and I... It expands his era immensely because he only got like one eighteen on TV, and then obviously he did the little mini episode for the fiftieth anniversary. And obviously, because Tom Baker was my doctor, I kind of collect those, and then I dip into the fifth, sixth, and seventh doctors' ranges when I see a particularly like good story reviewed or something that catches my eye. And thought, yeah. oh yeah, I listen to that. Um, yeah, definitely, I definitely recommend those ones. Um, it's I can't remember what the other ones are called. Vampire of the Mind might be one of them, and then the two masters. You've got the Alex McQueen. Oh yeah, uh, master, big finish you've introduced. Uh, yes. Plus the, the Jeffrey Beavers one, um, and they they really play on the differences between those two because the Alex McQueen one is the really uh, he's like the. Um, like the original master in a way, uh, Roger Delgado. He's very kind of uh, charming and and all the rest of it. And then you've got the Jeffrey Beavers one, who is desperately clinging on to life and, and trying to survive, uh, and doesn't really have time for all that kind of um, kind of charm and, and hypnotism and stuff. Yeah. So it's uh, it, it works really well in the story. Yeah. Uh, been interesting if they could ever have got Alex McQueen into the series with uh, Peter Capaldi as well, because they're both from uh, the thick of it, aren't they? Yeah, of course. And that would have been a nice little touch again. Uh, probably would have not meant anything to most of the viewers, but yeah. obviously the fans would have gone, you know, that would have been a nice uh, thing for him to actually get a television appearance as the master. Yeah, because again, from the thick of it, they had um, 
I can't remember the guy's name, but Ollie from the thick of it was in the series eight finale, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, I can't think of his name. But yeah, that was because uh, there, there was um, talk potentially of Armando Iannucci maybe uh, writing an episode for Peter Capaldi. He said he'd like to. Uh, that would have been something I'd like to see. Yeah, I saw that because obviously yeah, um, that would have been a, a nice thing to see his his take on it and see if it was like kind of like uniquely different to you know your standard Doctor Who like uh, Richard Curtis's was because that wasn't really a, your typical Doctor Who story, was it? Yeah, uh, and as Stephen Moffat's come from that kind of sitcom background. Um, yeah. Richard Curtis, and then um, the Amy's Choice as well. It was written by the guy that wrote Men Behaving Badly and and quite a lot of sitcoms. I forgot his name. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, He uh, Simon Knight. Did you say was that? Yeah, Simon Knight. I think he's called, isn't he? Yeah. So it's uh, it's good to get get different writers in like that as well. Um, But I guess he's quite busy on Veep. uh, Amanda Iannucci. Which is absolutely brilliant. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Uh, I haven't. No, that's that's one of the that's another TV series that again it's, it's recommended and you know there's so many good TV series at the moment. It's like you kind of like just lose track of everything. Yeah. that's it. You hear something's good or you see a trailer for something, and the next thing you know, it's like the fourth series is coming out, and you think, yeah, I mean, Ripper Street has come back uh, this week for its fifth and final series on BBC Two. And I've still got last year's fourth series, like languishing in my my skybox, <laughs> waiting to be watched. So I'm just deciding now, wait for series five to finish, and I can just do all like all series four and five all in one big yeah. sweep. And again, it's that touches on like we were saying at the beginning of how people kind of like watch TV uh, these days. Yeah, it might be a couple of years before you catch up realistically. Yeah. Yeah, at Game of Thrones, I didn't, I, I didn't really get into Game of Thrones until I think uh, just before the fourth series. Yeah, uh, it was one of those series that people talked about, raved about, and it's like, oh, I don't quite fancy it. And then again, you, you see them, you download them, you start watching them, and then then you get hooked, and then you do. I literally did the first three series of Game of Thrones literally within the space of about two or three weeks. It was ridiculous. Yeah. I, I've watched that since since the start, since it was on, but I've only ever watched them when they've been broadcast. So right. the first series now, seven years ago, I really struggled yeah. to remember it. And then, so characters will come back that haven't been on it for a few years. Um, and then my mates that have, uh, have watched it, like the box sets kind of thing, like you, they say, oh, no, yeah, he was in it before. So I think yeah. I need to, at some point, uh, probably won't have time before this new series starts, because it's only a month away. Um, but I need to go back through them all, uh, and it'd be like watching it anew, really, because it's been so long since I've watched the uh, the early ones. Uh, so, anything else to add on the Eaters of Light? Uh, I think uh, it was nice to see Ronan Monroe come back. Uh, kind of like a, it was, it was an episode of two halves, really. It was kind of like very much. A classic episode, but done in a new series styling, uh, yeah. with like the whole kind of like the monster and um, you know the companion and the Doctor getting separated. It's almost as if it was a kind of like a, a new series approach to how a classic 
Doctor Who story w- would have been done. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. it you know, it, it's not going to win any poll awards. It's not going to be, I think, anybody's favourite episode. But it was a, a good episode, kept your attention, and I'm just all set up, ready now for the, the two-part series finale and the return of the Mondas Cybermen and yeah. uh, John Sims' master. Absolutely, yeah, totally excited about that. Uh, yeah, I thought the so, same thing about the Eaters of Light. Like you say, it's it's a good, solid story. Um, definitely kind of notice things on repeat viewings as well. Um, yeah, and I think a good a good pairing with the uh, Empress of Mars in that they've got quite a few themes in common. Um, quite a you know good to watch them them back to back. You know, yeah, like set in the future as well. And, and families and tribes and. And that kind of aspect, yeah, yeah. Again, that's something that probably I didn't pick up on on first viewing. But like, yeah, like you say, if you were to view them back to back, you would definitely get that vibe from uh, both those episodes. Yeah, and I think things are designed now as well, aren't they? That they're going to be watched and scrutinised, watched multiple times, watched as part of a box set, and uh, it's not like the classic series where they just assumed it was going to go out once and. Uh, and be forgotten about, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much for joining me again. Uh, pleasure discussing that episode with you. Like I say, it was uh, great fun, and uh, thanks very much for inviting me back. No problem. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you back on again soon. Um, so, uh, to find you on Twitter, you are at Django Mac. Is that 70? Se- yeah. 72. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I missed that bit off. Yeah, so at Django Mac 72. <laughs> I am at Trapon underscore. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, leave a nice review. Uh, join me next week. I'll be discussing the first part of the finale with Eric Stadnick from Doctor Who, The Writer's Room. Thanks for listening. See you then. Thank you.